0: Hello, and welcome to Looking to Score, a Movie Score podcast. I'm Brianne Brennan, and joining me is my co-host, Brett Blake. Brett, how are you today?
1: I am fantastic. Thank you for having me.
0: Wonderful. So we wanted to kick off this podcast by basically giving you a preview of what we'll be talking about and a little bit about who we are. We are enthusiastic Movie Score fans who want to share our love of motion picture music with you. We're going to be talking about specific composers and something that really relates to them. So, for example, our first episode coming up will be John Williams and what his influence has been on uh, movie themes. We've uh, got a little bit of a film background.
1: We're simultaneously very qualified and probably not very qualified to talk about this. But we're going to act as if we are (laughs) always very qualified.
0: I think that's the perfect way of putting it. So, that being said, let me ask you this. What, in your opinion, makes a good score? Or is there anything that you like to hear in a score? I think it
1: depends because, to me, when you're talking about a score, you almost have to talk about it on two different levels or two different fronts. One, how well does it support the actual movie? And two, How enjoyable is it to listen to or experience divorced from the picture for me to truly be what I would consider like a great score? It has to work both for the film and as its own listening experience. Uh, You can have really good scores that fully support their film and and elevate their film but maybe are not the easiest to listen to. Maybe they're challenging if you're just going to say, I'm going to sit down and listen to this. So I might not consider that a great score, even though it does great work for the film for which it was composed. But to really be something that that I would consider an excellent piece of musical composition, it has to satisfy away from the film itself. And I think people could disagree. There there might be other people who are a little more hardcore and say, if it works for the movie, it's a great score regardless of whether you want to listen to it on its own. But uh but I think it, it has to fulfill that criteria as well for me.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of on that same level too. Um and that your point about is it good to listen to uh divorce from the movie itself that that mm-hmm. kind of brings to mind, you know, a score like Dunkirk or Sicario, where they're sure they work well in the movie itself, but you know, for a listening experience <laughs> uh, on its own, uh, maybe not so much. Can be challenging,
1: right? And it, and that's not to say there aren't, you know, there are certainly, especially in in the horror genre, say, there are definitely mm-hmm. scores that I will sometimes listen to that are not traditionally melodic or, or satisfying. Um, you know, I think of something like Mark Corvin's The Witch, which is a fairly recent one from several years ago, which I think is a fantastic horror score. And I have listened to it away from the film, but it's not something you can just sit down and listen to and think, well, this is pleasant because it's (laughs) definitely not. Um, it's not easy to just listen to it. Um, but it, it, it supports the film incredibly well.
0: Yeah. I'm going to talk about that a little later. But for scores like that, um, horror scores in particular, I think if you want to create an atmosphere for yourself or use music as an inspiration for your creative work, like writing or filmmaking, whatever, uh, that's kind of where I categorize horror scores. Yes. Um, I think for me in particular, like what makes a good score is that they're memorable or timeless. Specific examples, you know, are some of the heavy hitting classics like Lawrence of Arabia or Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark basically any John Williams if you will of course but i think not only that there has to be some kind of emotional quality to them too mm-hmm. that you can connect to and that they're that they're unique as well it's
1: interesting cuz emotional could mean many different things. So to me, if if a score is able to evoke some sort of a feeling um, in me, it could be awe, it could be wonder, it could be uh, excitement, it could be fear, um, apprehension. As long as you feel like there's, there's something related to the human condition in some way that is coming through the music and that it doesn't feel like like it was created by an artificial intelligence or something i would classify that as as emotional and i think that is important certainly if you want to have a score that that you would consider to be great quote unquote it has to be able to connect to the listener on some kind of a human level and hit some kind of emotional tone of some sort but there's a there's a wide gamut that that could cover
0: yeah, and I think what also makes a good score is that it transcends the movie. Now, that brings me to wonder, you know, what does it say about a movie when its score is more memorable or better than the movie itself? Is that a testament to the skill of a composer? I think in general, it can be and it, it certainly happens. Um, Jerry
1: Goldsmith was extremely prolific, certainly in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And a lot of the movies that he scored during that time just to be very frank, we're not very good movies. And uh, somebody asked him about this. It was like around the mid 90s. And it was asked in a very polite way. They said, Mr. Goldsmith, you know, how do you approach a film that you've been hired to to compose the music for and you've watched maybe a rough cut or, you know, a, a, a fine cut or something, and you just know in your heart that this is not going to be a great movie? How do you motivate yourself to create something for this. And his answer to this was essentially I don't score the movie that I have in front of me. I score the ideal version that the movie might be. Hmm. So yes, he will hit, you know, sync points and he will make sure it all fits the edit of the picture, but he would in those situations basically let his imagination run wild and not be bound by the quality of the picture. So certainly in situations like that, I mean, Jerry Goldsmith wrote many scores that ended up being much better than the actual movies that they were written for. And it's a thing that happens. And a lot of films that are bad are not that lucky to have a, a composer like a Jerry Goldsmith working overtime to deliver great work for, you know, what is otherwise a subpar product. So
0: in short, money.
1: Well, yes. (laughs) I'm just kidding. If you can afford Jerry Goldsmith, you're going to get an excellent score whether or not your movie is any good, basically. (laughs) I mean, you could – that was sort of – one aspect of the movie was going to be guaranteed to be quality if you could get Jerry Goldsmith.
0: That is probably true. Now, that brings me to another point. I think anybody uh, is able to recognize some of the most familiar scores out there. And I was thinking about this while watching Raiders of the Lost Ark – Would a movie be as good as it is with its score, or would it be different without its score? It also made me think of alternate scores for movies. You know, aside from Ridley Scott's Legend, I don't know if there have been other instances where there are alternate scores for movies, but Legend Legend is probably the one that comes to mind where I'm probably in the Tangerine Dream camp. While you're in the Jerry Goldsmith camp, so. (laughs) Correct.
1: Although I like the Tangerine Dream score. Well, I mean, this really, this could be a topic for an entire episode on its own, because there are some pretty famous, famous as a relative word, famous to people who follow film scores. There are some famous replaced or rejected scores. Uh, Goldsmith had several. Uh, Alan Silvestri's had several. He he was the one who scored uh, Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible film that score was then rejected. And then you had Danny Elfman come in. It's an interesting subject, but it's rare that you get to actually experience the movie with both the rejected score and then the score that replaced it like you can with legend. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's a very interesting case where th- those scores radically change the tone of the movie. The Tangerine Dream score makes the movie feel a little darker Um, and certainly makes it feel more 80s. I mean, it Mm. definitely roots it sort of in a quasi MTV ish kind of a little bit new wavy kind of feel, whereas the Goldsmith score is very lush, very romantic, you know, swashbuckling at times. It's a very, very sort of old fashioned kind of score. And that is kind of a test case of here's what two different approaches to musical underscore can do for your film and and sort of dramatically push it into different tonal areas.
0: So would Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark be as good as they are without those scores? I often no, wonder that. I don't think so. I don't think so either. But yeah. of course
1: it's hard to re- you know, can we objectively really say that? Because we've experienced our whole lives with those movies having those scores. Right. So if we were seeing Star Wars fresh for the first time without any music, and then somebody other than John Williams came in and wrote a great score, it might work. I mean, it's it's possible. Do I think it would be better than what John Williams did? Probably not. But again, that's informed by my own bias of, you know, that score has been a part of my life since I can remember almost. So it, it's difficult to... To pose that sort of a what-if question, I think it probably just depends on your own personal inclinations.
0: Yeah, that would certainly be an interesting universe.
1: Yeah, if you could, t- if you could get somebody who somehow had never seen Star Wars or the Indiana Jones movies and who, who didn't really know anything about film scores and you were able to show them the films without any music at all, and then somehow create an alternative score and put it in there and just see what their reaction to that is. And then show them the final, the real version, the version that actually exists. What would their reaction to that be? Yeah. Um, it, it, it would kind of be a fascinating psychological study if you could find those kind of people.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of what we love are the more classic scores But I think the state of movies today or movie scores today is geared a little more towards like ambient, abstract uh, Mm -hmm. scores. And I don't know if, if you think that's a good or a bad thing. I think a lot of it depends on the movie itself and how it sounds within the movie. I mean, for me personally, there hasn't really been an ambient or abstract score that I can really attach to. I mean, aside from Wander Darkly by Alex Weston, which came out last year, which is kind of ambient abstract at times.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely part of a trend that is going on in terms of film scoring. A lot of these scores that, that we would call ambient or abstract, they can often sort of be done almost entirely on people's computers. They're, all, you know, It may sound like an orchestra, but it's really being synthesized. So in that sense, it's cheaper. You're not having to hire an orchestra. You're not having to pay royalties to the musicians or the musicians union. You're not having to actually rent out scoring stages. So there are financial reasons, certainly the smaller films, why you go that route and and you would go the ambient abstract route because it's easier to fake that sound with synthesizers than it is to fake, you know, a lush, big 120 piece orchestra via synthesizers, which you can do, you know, people like uh, Hans Zimmer can do that. And it'll sound more or less close to the actual authentic live recording. But there's another piece to this too, which is, Even in bigger films, blockbusters and stuff, you're seeing a pretty dramatic move away from an emphasis on melody or theme in favor of percussion and rhythm. And I think that has a lot to do with the idea that a lot of these pictures, the the editing of them is fluctuating so much up until right before release that they need to be scored in such a way that you can make Micro changes to whatever cue is going to be underscoring this scene that is changing in the edit. If you're recording this with a live orchestra, or uh, if you're scoring it with a long-lined melody, it's very difficult to tweak. But if you're just scoring it with sort of a repetitive rhythm or or percussion loops and things like that, it's very simple to tweak right up until the last minute. Right up until you actually do finally lock the picture before release. So I think that mentality that, that a film is really never finished until, until just as it's about to be released has definitely had an impact on how they end up being scored.
0: And, you know, maybe there was a turning point with Hans Zimmer's Inception score, which really kind of hammered home the, the pulse-pounding orchestral synth brass sound that we're used to in blockbuster scores nowadays.
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, I think, again, this would be on on bigger pictures. Studio executives look at, here are the 10 films that have done the best over the last 10 years, and they'll see, you know, six of the 10 had very similar sounding scores. And then they will make a correlation in their minds that says, well, if we want our movie to be successful, it should have a score that sounds like this. So you'll get a lot of scores, whether they're scored by Hans Zimmer or his Acolytes or not have a very sort of Hans Zimmer influence that is sort of hard to ignore. Mm. Um, And I like Hans Zimmer. I'm I'm a little less a fan of some of the people who have been ripping him off and some of his (laughs) protégés. Because my feeling is if you want the Hans Zimmer sound, just get Hans Zimmer. I mean, get the real thing. Don't don't fake it. But that's definitely – he's been, I would say, in the last 25 years, to my mind, the most influential – for better or worse, composer, big composer out there, because he's set a lot of trends that are still in motion.
0: Are there any newer or notable composers that you'd like to acknowledge?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, you we've talked about him before, but Daniel Pemberton, I think, is yeah. not necessarily an heir apparent to anybody, because I think he's he does have sort of his own voice, but He's pretty eclectic. He can do a lot of different genres. He can write melody, but he can also do, you know, a quasi Zimmer thing, but with a bit more personality. Um, I think he's just a very interesting composer.
0: Um, I would say Bear McCreary is one to look out for. Uh, I think he had a pretty banner year last year. Uh, He had a a bunch of scores out. And uh, one of my favorites is Jed Curzel who is more heavy into like cellos and, and darker sounding strings, I'd say Um, his scores for Macbeth and uh, Assassin's Creed have that kind of feel to them. Mm -hmm. So uh, he's one to keep an eye on as well. So as we wrap this up, let's end with giving a brief top five of some scores that we like.
1: So this is not in, this is not like one through five. These are just five scores that would be in my top 10. And at at this very moment I'm saying are my top five, but it could fluctuate. There might be some other scores might, you know, leapfrog might, you know, show up in here. So I would go, in fact, I'll list them off in, in order of release. So going back to 1959, Uh, Miklos Rocha's Ben-Hur is sort of your traditional um, archetypal biblical epic. Massive, lush, uh, big sweeping themes. Uh, It's pretty much a masterpiece score. Jumping ahead 10 years to 1969, I would have John Barry's Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which given that it's one of my top five favorite scores to me is the definitive James Bond score. He packs so much stuff in there. I mean, in addition to the James Bond theme, which obviously existed before this score, he, there there's a new, uh, action theme. There's probably the most beautiful and, and melancholy love theme that John Barry had ever written. There's fantastic action material, There's very atmospheric sort of intrigue, espionage material. It's it's a really really entertaining score. Jumping ahead another ten years to 1979, I would say Jerry Goldsmith's Star Trek the Motion Picture, which um, I think is probably his biggest biggest in terms of number of musicians um, and just the the size of the sound itself. Um, It's a pretty massive. Score that has, you know, an adventurous feel and a very mysterious feel. Um, Goldsmith was one of the best composers at generating a sense of uh, the uncanny or the unusual. And uh, that's definitely in full force on Star Trek the Motion Picture. That would go to 1980 then with John Williams and The Empire Strikes Back, which takes everything he did on Star Wars and then turns it up to 11, adds major new themes, develops the existing themes very, very well. And I think if you were to poll most John Williams fans, I'm sure that Empire Strikes Back would probably be in most of their top three of his scores. It's, It's terrific. And then finally, one more John Williams score. This could have all been John Williams scores, but I wanted to limit it only to two. 1991's hook which to me is my favorite John Williams score. I think it's it's the best thing he ever wrote. It's the score that by far has the most original themes and motifs he ever created for a single film. There's like there's over a dozen and it it really plays out like a symphony. The way he uses the themes, the way he develops them, it's it's just fantastic uh, top
0: to bottom. Excellent. So like yours, mine aren't in a particular order. So I think unlike a top 5-10 movie list, which for me is pretty solid, uh, my score list tends to fluctuate a little bit too. Uh, So these are more scores that I like to come back to and ones that never fail to give me what I like to refer to as a movie chill, which in scientific terms is called a on. I may also refer to it as a scorgasm, just FYI. So, in order of release, I'll start with 1962, Lawrence of Arabia by Maurice Char, which is the quintessential epic score and one that also transcends the movie, I think. Its themes are driving and militaristic at times, but also uh, contrasted with the beautiful, haunting main theme that really feels almost sweeping and solitary at the same time. It's, it's a theme that never fails to give me a movie chill. Next is 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark by John Williams. Uh, this score has some of my all-time favorite themes, and I'm going to reference Lawrence of Arabia here uh, with the beautiful Marion's theme. I believe John Williams said was very much influenced by Jar's main theme for Lawrence. So this score really has everything. Themes of adventure, romance, and also the paranormal. Uh, the cue the map room is probably... One of my favorite John Williams pieces of all time. I mean, just listening to it on its own and even while watching the movie never fails to ignite a scorgasm. Next is from 1990, Edward Scissorhands by Danny Elfman. I come back to this score time and again just because it's one I grew up with. Uh, I think it's also his masterpiece and one of his most heart-rending scores just because it feels so character-driven and gentle And it also plays into the world around Edward and what he's experiencing. Love, anger, discovery, hurt. Uh, I think it's one of the most beautiful scores ever written, actually. Up next is from 2002, and it is Wrote to Perdition by Thomas Newman. And I I really love this score for all the elements that are at work in it, which might be kind of off-putting to some. Uh, However, I find it to be one of his most compelling works. It can be very Newman-esque at times, uh, in that he employs many of his unusual instrument combos to create his signature style, but there are also many cues in the score that might seem more suited for a horror movie, which is interesting. So I really love the dissonance about it, as well as its more affecting main theme. And finally, my last pick is another of the most beautiful scores ever written from 2004, James Newton Howard's The Village. Also one of the best scores for one of the worst movies, arguably. This is correct. (laughs) So when I first saw the movie in theaters, I came out disappointed, but also with one goal in mind, buy the soundtrack now. So I went out and got it and I always come back to it. Uh, It's got a main theme with a solo violin that's so delicate and beautiful. And it really evokes the feel of autumn or the Halloween season. I think we can both agree on that.
1: I can't argue with any of those. Those are all fantastic.
0: If you're interested in checking out more of the music mentioned here, you can find our companion playlist to each episode on Spotify by searching for Looking to Score. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. We hope you join us for our next episode where we dive into the world of theme and John Williams. Thanks and see you next time.